welcome to the 14th episode of ThoughtSpace, the podcast from the Center for Policy Research. CPR is an Indian think tank researching on various issues from urbanization to foreign policy, from economic reforms to environmental challenges. Today, Richa Bansal from the communications team will be in conversation with senior fellow Navroz Dubash to unpack how President Donald Trump's recent executive order to promote U.S. energy independence and economic growth will impact global efforts to limit climate change, including the role that India can play. Hi, I'm Richa and welcome to the podcast, Navroz. Thank you. So let me begin by asking you, what does President Trump's executive order on energy independence do? So President Trump uh, recently passed this order, uh, which is called the Executive Order on Promoting Energy Independence and Economic Growth. Uh, It was expected that he would do something like this. It was very much part of his uh, election campaign. And in essence, what the order does is try to completely change and steer the direction of U.S. energy policy for the coming years. Uh, What it does is put the focus on domestic energy production in the U.S. tied to an agenda for promoting jobs. Uh, It opens the door to greater expansion of uh, what are called fossil fuels that are coal, oil and gas uh, in the U.S. And it does all this by revisiting a number of President Obama's executive orders on energy, which were trying to do something quite different. President Obama was trying to steer the U.S. economy Uh, towards a more climate-friendly direction, uh, trying to reduce uh, emissions. And President Trump's order, in essence, says we're going to revisit all of those things um, because we really want to put American interests and American energy independence first. Uh, And I can talk a little bit more about the specifics of of what he does. Yes, uh, as in how this order fits into the larger approach to energy and climate politics in the U.S. today. Right. So what President Trump says, and this is quite important, is he starts by reframing what is important for uh, uh, American energy, uh, as I said, particularly around, around jobs. And then the order requires that a series of uh, President Obama's uh, uh, executive orders be revisited. Uh, for, for one, the most important one is something called the Clean Power Plan. And the Clean Power Plan was a plan to reduce emissions from U.S. electricity uh, uh, power plants through a series of measures operating at the level of different states. So every state, in a sense, had to come up with its own um, basis for reducing emissions. And this was a very big element of America meeting its pledge to reduce greenhouse gases under the Paris Agreement. So the key clean power plant is on the order of 40 or 50 percent of that reduction that the U.S. uh, pledged to make. The executive order, President Trump's executive order says, let's revisit that and let's revisit it by seeing if the benefits uh, are worth the costs. Let's revisit it by seeing what it does for jobs. Let's see, revisit it by seeing what it does for uh, our own energy independence. Uh, and the Clean Power Plan is, has been controversial because it is already in court. The coal industry in particular has, has been unhappy about it. Um, and the effect of this uh, is yet to be seen. Um, But this is one very big particular item uh, uh, in the executive order. A very interesting additional item, and this gets a little technical here, is the executive, President Trump's executive order revisits what is called the social cost of carbon. And what that is, uh, is actually saying 
if we think that reducing carbon dioxide brings some kind of gain, can we put a dollar value on that gain? And, and the earlier uh, policy said that number is 36. $36 uh, is the gain from every ton of carbon that is reduced, right? Now, well, that is a relatively big number. And what it does is it makes every measure to reduce greenhouse gases quite beneficial, right? Because every ton reduced is, gives you a gain of $36. What the Trump order does, it says, we put that aside, and every agency has to decide by itself what it thinks the social cost of carbon is. And so the whole process of regulation becomes complicated because according to the US, uh, according to US law, every regulation has to be justified on a cost-benefit analysis. So by removing the social cost of carbon uh, uh, agreement on, on a particular number, it makes the benefit of every regulation lower and makes every future regulatory action less likely. Right? So it's a far-reaching uh, effect that will ripple through uh, the US regulatory system on energy. And what will this order mean in the context of the Paris Agreement? So interestingly, the order is focused on energy independence. It says nothing about the Paris Agreement, though we are anticipating that there will be something coming out about Paris uh, in time for uh, the uh, Group of Seven, the G7 meeting, which is uh, supposed to be held uh, uh, sometime in May, June. Um, it has implications for Paris, even though it says nothing definite about Paris, because the likely rollback of the Clean Power Plan, the removal of the social cost of carbon, and a series of other measures, including uh, rolling back certain measures or reviewing certain measures uh, to reduce other greenhouse gases, like methane and so on and so forth, will make it very, very hard for the US to meet its pledge for greenhouse gas reductions under the Paris Agreement. Now, to step back, in the Paris Agreement, every country was required to voluntarily put out a number on what it could achieve by 2030 or by 2025, in the case of the US, in terms of reductions, uh, reductions in emissions. The US put out uh, a pledge, and the sum total of the Obama-era uh, efforts were likely to get the US a good portion of the way there, but not all the way there. And so, as it is, the US was under question, will you be able to meet your pledges? And now, with these rollbacks, it makes it even less likely that they will be able to meet their pledges. And so the question becomes whether or not the Trump administration formally withdraws from Paris, they are putting on the table domestic measures that are going to make it very hard for the US to credibly meet its pledges absent something else. And will the impact of that, if that were to happen, uh, is that more than symbolic or has the damage already been done now with the signing of the order? I think a lot depends on how other countries uh, interpret the US action. I think there's no doubt that it doesn't help, right? I mean, when you have a large country, which has historically been the largest emitter of greenhouse gases over time uh, uh, in, the, in the world, if you look back uh, in particular over the last 100 years, which is you know, since the Industrial Revolution, if you have the largest country in essence saying we're not going to meet our pledge, uh, and in addition, there are strong indications uh, in an earlier budgetary statement by the, the uh, Trump administration that they were cutting back funding for the EPA, they were cutting back funding for, uh, uh, for climate change uh, and for uh, uh, the UN, the support given to the UN negotiation process through the US government. So uh, it's likely that the money that the US was supposed to contribute for 
supporting developing countries to adapt to climate change as well as to reduce their own emissions, that money is likely to be withdrawn. So if you find the leading, um, uh, I guess the, the country that is most responsible pulling back from its pledges, uh, then it really calls the whole system somewhat into question. I think the issue for the rest of us is do we, uh, as a matter of principle, dig in our own heels, which would be understandable, but I think counterproductive? Or do we say, in our own self-interest, we have to keep this Paris system going. We have to buttress Paris. We have to keep it alive. Uh, and the Paris Agreement um, has, is only really going to kick in in 2020. There's a bunch of legal detail yet to be worked out. The machinery of Paris is actually still being negotiated. I think it's important to proceed with negotiating and putting in place that institutional machinery, uh, both because the rest of the world has to move on and there are other countries that are also uh, substantial contributors, and because at some point, I believe, the U US politics around climate change has to become more sensible and they will come back to the table. And at that point, I think it would be very, very counterproductive to start all over again. Um, that's very interesting, Navroz. Now, coming to India, as signatory to the Paris Agreement, should India be concerned about the President's executive order? And how can India best protect its interests, both domestically and internationally? Well, certainly, uh, we have grounds for concern. Uh, historically, India has been a leading voice arguing for equity and justice in the climate agreement. And when you have, as I said, the country that is most responsible for the problem, essentially saying, look, we are just going to um, more or less walk away from our commitment, then it is in no way consistent with an equitable outcome. Right? Because the country that has done most to cause the problem should do most to clean it up. And they should also be paying uh, for adaptation. So if both those things don't happen, it is, it is uh, less likely to be a fair and equitable outcome. Uh, but, that, but as I've said, I think that if we were to let Paris unravel, and there's a risk it could, because if other countries then said, well, clearly, if, if countries like the US are not serious about Paris, the Paris Agreement, why should we be serious? And you could have a domino effect uh, that way. I think India actually has a very big role to play in trying to prevent that sort of unraveling. Because at the moment, with the US more or less ceding leadership, China has stepped into a leadership role and said, we are recommitting to our pledge and we are going to support Paris. The Europeans have always been strong champions uh, of Paris. Um, and really after those two blocks, after China and the EU uh, and US, we are the next largest country in terms of how much uh, we emit every year. And therefore we have a big voice in this. And if we stand up and say, we think Paris is worth preserving, uh, then it emboldens other countries, it emboldens smaller countries, the, China, uh, the Brazils and South Africa's, as well as the small African countries, uh, other countries in our region who are very much in favor of the Paris Agreement, such as Bangladesh, which is a vulnerable country. Um, I think the chances, we have a, a, a role to play in increasing the chances that the Paris Agreement is supported, strengthened, and actually fully uh, implemented. And it's also an opening for us to actually present ourselves as a responsible world player. And I think that's not a trivial uh, additional argument. Um, yes, I think you had mentioned, uh, you had written similarly in an op-ed earlier in this month. Um, 
talking about India's pledges specifically, India's pledges have also had to balance growth and development against their climate goals. And could you speak a little bit about how that balance has been achieved domestically and how they're not mutually ex exclusive as the Trump administration seems to believe? So I, I think, uh, in a sense, your question is part of a larger question, which is what on earth is going on in energy politics globally? Um, and we are at a very, very interesting time. Let me just first start with the U.S. and then, and then come more directly to your question about, about India. I mentioned that the U.S. is planning to roll back this clean power plan, uh, which uh, in essence tries to limit emissions from uh, electric uh, power plants. Now, a lot of people feel that with or without the clean power plan, the U.S. is going to move further and further away from coal-based power and more and more in the direction of gas-based power uh, and more renewable-based power simply because of the economics of it. Uh, coal is being outcompeted, and the clean power plan, repeal of the clean power plan is unlikely to reverse those economics very fundamentally. And so we are part of a larger, there is an emergent global dynamic where coal is being disfavored cheap gas is flooding the market, notably because of the US, cheap renewable energy, notably solar, is flooding the market because of very cheap uh, uh, panels that China is producing, uh, in part that is supported by German taxpayers because the German government has put its weight behind uh, increasing their renewable energy. So there are these global shifts uh, going on. So in terms of the US, what this says is that the clean power plan Rolling back the clean power plan may be more symbolic. There may, in fact, be this transition happening in the US anyway. Uh, that is only a piece of it, however, and it doesn't affect the larger point I made earlier, uh, which is that they are likely to fall short of their pledges. Right? Um, but there are also arguments that the transition away from coal could bring more jobs. It would certainly bring cleaner uh, uh, energy and less pollution. And so the U.S. may be somewhat shooting itself in the foot. Uh, President Trump has to play to a constituency. He made this story about coal very important in his campaign, and he's trying to follow through on it. But it's not clear if that is uh, a, a promise that can be fully redeemed. For India, we have actually taken an interesting approach in that we have basically said uh, we have a set of domestic policy measures that are, in fact, more stringent, more ambitious, than what we have said as part of our Paris Pledge. So we have committed to a very high increase in renewable energy, 175 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2022. Just to give you a sense, uh, uh, an order of magnitude, that is, about, that is over half of our existing grid capacity uh, just in the next uh, few years. Now, renewable energy doesn't run for as long as coal and other sources because the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So you can't compare capacity to capacity uh, on equivalent terms, but it is by any measure a lot of renewable energy. Uh, so we've committed to this. We have a strong emphasis on reducing air pollution. I would argue not quite enough as yet, but it is nonetheless growing in that direction. Um, and we seem to have made a decision that we want to move in the direction of cleaner energy sources. The other gain from it is we have to import less coal, we have to import less gas, and we are relatively poor in those resources compared to other countries. So there are lots of good reasons why we want to do this anyway. Right? So stepping back from the Paris Pledge 
doesn't really win us anything. We want to make these changes. We want to move in the direction of a, of a cleaner uh, energy uh, economy. And so, since we are likely to do it anyway, we should use that fact to actually be, uh, uh, to, to, to um, reassert, in a sense, our pledge, our commitment to the, the Paris Pledge. So in that sense, is there a silver lining to the situation in that the signing of the executive order offers an opportunity for countries like India and China to play a more significant role in international climate negotiations? Well, I think it might be stretching it a little bit to call it a silver lining. At the end of the day, it's, it's still something profoundly to be uh, avoided. You don't want to put the Paris Agreement at risk. You want the US to do the right thing. Um, and the fact that other countries might find a little geopolitical gain is, 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 is something to sort of think about. Um, but I think the key is to keep our eye on the long-term issue, which is how can India play a role in making sure that this imperfect but better than the other options and hard-won international agreement, which is really the best bet we have to limit serious climate damage, how that is not damaged, punctured, derailed uh, by this order. That's really, I think that's really the agenda and at least in my view, um, I think India should, uh, uh, despite, it, despite the fact that it can be kind of irritating and galling uh, to proceed without the US, I think it is in our larger enlightened self-interest to actually make sure uh, that we keep the momentum going and work with um, if it's the Chinese, if it's the Europeans, whoever the other supporters are, to keep the momentum going on this, on this process and in a sense force the US back to the table uh, at the time when, when their domestic politics allow them to come back to the table uh, without actually having gained very much from this, uh, from this detour. And so just following up on that, does this then mark the beginning of a more multipolar world in a, in a global climate negotiation and what means for the climate negotiations? Well, I think we have been living in a uh, more multipolar world. I mean, when, this, when the Framework Convention, which is sort of the parent uh, document of the Paris Agreement was negotiated, which was back in 1992, um, we were living in a, in a very much a unipolar world. Uh, with the rise of China, it is at least, uh, uh, you know, there's at least two poles. And in the negotiation process for the Paris Agreement, it became clear that the China, China and the U.S. together were defining if not everything about the agreement, then definitely the limits, the broad contours uh, of the agreement. With the U.S. stepping back, there's obviously more space for China and more space uh, for India, as well as some of our past allies like Brazil and South Africa and so on. So yeah, I think there's space to do some, some creative uh, uh, diplomacy here um, and, and uh, figure out how to make sure that the evolution of the Paris Agreement uh, enhances and ensures our interests. Thanks, Navroz. That's a positive note to end on. Thanks for a very nice podcast. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of Thought Space and want to learn more about the research CPR does across various topics, please subscribe to our mailing list and social media channels through our website www.cprindia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India.